The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. We're going to be talking about an issue that obviously comes up a lot these days. Uh, You know, lots of things going on in the world and people are always, you know, pray and prayer and... And a lot of times, as Christians, we, you know, a lot of us I know can struggle with that. We don't pray as often as we should. We need to do it more than we do. It just seems like, you know, we have excuses. Today's hustle and bustle world, it's hard to stop and spend time in decent time in prayer and meditation. So we don't do it with much consistency, and we know that we really should. Now, of course, in desperate times, we stop and we pray and we bow our head and we'll shoot up a little, uh, you know, yeah, but it kind of falls short of the whole pray without ceasing type attitude. And it's not like we don't know it's important. And we often read in the scriptures, and of course it convicts us when we do read it, that what it says about prayer. And it's not like the scriptures vague on the topic. We don't have to come up with the ideas ourselves. It's pretty clear when we're told things like, don't worry about anything. Rather, in every area of life, let God know what you want as you pray and make requests and give thanks as well. And God's peace, which is greater than we can even understand, will guard over your hearts and minds in King Jesus. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And in Colossians, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, we all know that the Christian life should be filled with prayer. As Paul stated in Colossians above, we should be devoted to it. It is our lifeline, our direct connection with the Father. We use it always and in all situations to seek all that we need while here on this earth. We should engage in it to give thanks and praise to the Most High God, to show our appreciation for all he has done for us, our family, and everything around us. In times of trouble, we can pray for strength. In times of suffering, we can pray for relief. And in all times, we should give thanks. If we stop to ponder forever so slight slight of a moment and recall all the blessings we have and all that the Lord has provided for us in life, the giving of thanks to him should come easily as a daily event in our lives. The scripture provides clear examples for us on this topic also. For the Son himself prays, and that, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And then also in John 11, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Example after example could be given from Jesus and the apostles of a thankful tongue. And even though we know in our heads that this should be our daily desire, it sometimes feels like pulling teeth to try to get us to slow down and do so. Unfortunately for many in modern times, a steady time of prayer, just like our steady time of Bible reading, can be a struggle to maintain. Is it the fast-paced way of living that hinders us from slowing down for a quiet time with God? Or are there other reasons that we might neglect this? 
Are our minds so filled with distractions that we have a hard time even being quiet and concentrating on God? I do wish to explore a little of what might be some of the things that can hinder us. For many people, it may just be simply a matter of struggling because not really feeling they know how to pray. They feel like there's a correct way and an incorrect way, and they're not sure how to do it. Sometimes we may start off with an active prayer life, but quickly become discouraged as though praying is making no difference in our lives. Is God listening? Why am I getting no relief? Why are my prayers not being answered as I hoped? These struggles can lead to a lifeless prayer life or no prayer life at all. Today, I would like to explore one of the root causes for the weak prayer life of some and some ways that we may break free of this cycle of cynicism. But first, stop and consider this. You may imagine that there were times when the apostles were with Jesus and had the opportunity to ask him pretty much anything. And we find examples of some things when they might have inquired. But when we do find some recorded in scriptures, we find that when they did inquire in Luke 11, they simply asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, I can't help but imagine that they had seen so many of Jesus' prayers. He prayed, things happened, it was just powerful. And they probably wanted to know how they could have a prayer life that flowed like that. They understood the power. They saw it firsthand. They wanted to be able to tap into that kind of relationship with the Father. And so they wanted to know, how do we pray? If we find that we are struggling to pray, do we use that as an excuse to just give up from having a prayer life? Or do we search out ways to learn how to make a deeper connecting prayer life? Are we making any effort seeking to learn and get past our insecurities? Let's look at some of what we do know about how not to pray. After the disciples had asked their master to instruct them how to pray, we find an account in Matthew where Jesus explains some instructions on what not to do, and these are good to keep in mind. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus first condemns the prayers that are done like the hypocrites. The term hypocrisy in the New Testament is taken from a cultural understanding of that time. A hypocrite was one who was in the theater, one who was considered to be play-acting. Today we think of it as someone who believes one thing but lives contrary to that, or acts contrary to their words. However, at that time it was referring to someone who was basically just faking it. So to be a hypocrite was to be fake or phony, something that the Pharisees had made a fine art out of at that time. They would stand in public and get attention and admiration through their lofty prayers, but they were only offering empty and fraudulent prayers. Do not be concerned with whether your prayers are eloquent, wordy, fine-tuned, or worthy of attention. You do not want your prayers to end up being fake. I know in praying publicly, we may wish to seem deeply theologically sound or super spiritual. We want to appear more spiritual maybe than we really are. We want to impress people. And for a lot of people, that may be a reason why they, when they're asked to pray, they have great fear. The feeling of being inadequate and unable to impress those around them with great spiritual prayers. But public prayer is not a time to show off. It should be a time just as personal, just as real, just as full of life as it would be if it was in your own private closet. Remember the parable of the two men that we read at the opening. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You are speaking to God and not just for the benefit and show of those around you. God is not interested in public displays of wisdom, piety, or other outward show forms of religion. He wants true, faithful prayer and outward, true godliness. Be real. Pour out your heart to the Father. Returning to our section in Matthew where Jesus was instructing them how to pray, he continues by saying, And praying, you may not use vain repetitions like the nations, for they think that in their much speaking they shall be heard. But ye, be ye not therefore like them, for your Father doth know those things that you have need of before you're asking him. He warns about praying like the Gentiles do with prayers of vain repetitions. Now, I switched the translation here to the young living, young living, young literal, young living oil version, um, the young living version, mainly because the term vain repetition, I like that, how it captures the feeling here. Some translations like the ESV that I usually use will state, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Well, yeah, that's similar. It just kind of feels, maybe it's because I grew up with the King James, but it feels like it lacks the punch that vain repetition has. You can heap up empty phrases without repeating the same phrase, so it kind of loses the repetition aspect in my mind. The Greek word here is batalageo, and is the only place in Scripture where this term is used. It means to repeat the same things over and over, to use idle words or to babble. The pagans of the day believed that the repetition of words was like some kind of special incantation, and the more words they used, the better the chances of being heard. Now, when I read this warning, when I read it as a new Christian, and of course my wife too, because she came from this background, it kind of brought to mind the practices of, you know, one very influential religious body that I'm sure most of you know where we're going with this, but former Roman Catholics struggle with this, but the Roman Catholic Church is notorious for repetitious prayers. They assign to their followers sort of as a form of penance. They're repeating multiple times of things like the Hail Marys and Our Fathers. And of course, one might say that it's really not that they're praying at all. It's more of a punishment for what their sin or whatever they've done that they've confessed. But even so, the outcome is not much different than what the Scripture speaks against. When said like this, these words not bad words upon in themselves, but they end up becoming nothing more than a chore. They have no meaning, and they end up with no influence on our spiritual life at all. This kind of lifeless repetitiveness is not pleasing to the Father at all. You do not need to keep repeating things like a mantra to get God to respond. You do not need to heap up more and more words in order to get through. God does not require, as a form of punishment for your sin, the repeating of large amounts of words like these. As Scripture says, He knows what you want before you ask. So just ask and quit thinking that there is some magic mixture of words that's required. 
Now, there are many churches, especially in the Reformed branches that we would be affiliated with, that follow the practice of having, for instance, the whole congregation recite the Lord's Prayer every week in the Lord in the service. Would this be considered a vain repetition? Well, not necessarily, because hopefully you can see there's a difference between saying it weekly as a part of a worship service versus saying something multiple times over and over in one sitting. Most of the churches that use it in worship service do so as a teaching tool. A practice like this would be very beneficial at a time, especially in the past, when the churches, when not everybody in the church read or not everybody in the church had scripture in front of them. So it's beneficial for those who don't read, but it's also beneficial for the children who don't read. This was a way for them to learn and memorize a portion of scripture just from rote, just from constantly repeating it. As a congregation repeats it frequently, it builds a pattern of prayer and memorization in their minds, and it builds a foundation. However, if it just becomes an empty blurting out of words by someone in the congregation with no thought of what's being said, then yes, it can become as vain and useless as other churches may use it. We are not given the Lord's Prayer to use it as a mindless chant, but it can be viewed as a kind of outline for prayer. Each section outlines a portion of thought that can be there a header for additional prayer in that category. Historically, many Protestant denominations held also to the frequent singing of psalms in the worship service, and that they serve two purposes also. Not only are you actually singing God's inspired songbook, but just like with the Lord's Prayer, it helped the children, it helped the people to learn Scripture. It ingrained its Scripture into their mind from a childhood up. And I know I've used this example before, but the whole situation with music and how the mind works. A song may come on the radio that you haven't heard since you were a child, yet for some reason you just seem to know all the words. Because your mind with music really connects and it's a good memorization tool. So church songs based strongly on scripture are used in a similar situation. When the ancient church practiced the week after week singing of psalms, for instance, those words, actual scripture verses put to music basically, became ingrained in the mind, and it becomes a way to almost effortlessly memorize scripture passages. And since so many of the Psalms are prayers themselves, the added benefit would would now have an entire system of prayer examples to draw from in your daily needing of prayer examples. Similarly, the Lord's Prayer is working in the same manner. And once it is a part of the fabric of your being, it, like the Psalms, can be used as a launching pad for prayer in those times when maybe you're at a loss for words on what to pray. As I mentioned, many people use the Lord's Prayer as a sort of outline to assist them to go through their prayer time, breaking down each segment into a topic and then praying accordingly. For instance, the first segment, Our Father in Heaven, Hallowed Be Your Name, is about praising God and honoring His name. So you start your prayer time by spending some time in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for all He is and has done. Pray that His name continues to be declared holy by those by more and more people and that in your own life, you would live so as to cause it to be praised and not cursed. You could find yourself parking there for a long time, enough prayer there for a long time, yes. But when done, you move to the next segment. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This will launch you into praying for things that would advance the kingdom and God's purposes. And then step by step, you could work your way through each line, finding it to be a great help to just give you an idea to launch into more things to pray about in your prayer time. 
Now, there are many issues that can affect a Christian's prayer life, but time will only allow us to look at the one that we're going to focus on today that can cause a very lifeless prayer life, or no prayer life at all, if you have it at all. Cynicism is unfortunately very predominant in the day, in this day and age, and Christians are not immune to it. While Jesus said to have a more, more of a childlike faith, cynicism is pretty much the opposite. And many Christians can easily find themselves standing on the edge of cynicism as they struggle with defeat and spiritual weariness. While we indeed may have a true foundation and hope, unlike a true cynic, it is still possible for the weariness to steal much of our spiritual well-being away when it comes to faith and prayer. This weariness becomes cynicism as we question the active goodness of God towards us. And if left alone, it will grow to swing the door open to bigger and bigger doubts. One person stated it this way, I think we have built up scar tissue from our frustrations, and we don't want to expose ourselves anymore. Fear constrains us. Another person says, I know that I am not alone in my struggle with cynicism, but most of us are not aware that it is a problem or that it is taking hold in our hearts. It just feels like we can't find the joy in things like we are too aware to trust or hope. Cynicism creates numbness towards life, and we begin to slowly adjust our passions to live within those confines. We begin being skeptical of everything, looking for the hidden angle, trying to find the cloud behind the silver lining instead. We are suspect of things. We critique everything rather than being engaging, loving, and hopeful. It may protect us from disappointment at times, but it is also actually paralyzing us from doing much of anything. And it tends to lead to bitterness, frustration, and eventually it will deaden our spirit. It causes us to be distant, and it destroys the intimacy we should have with our Heavenly Father and those around us. This is essentially the opposite of abiding with Christ and the Father, of drawing close and letting the relationship change us to be more of an image bearer. Instead, we turn to a form of self-protection based on our own strength and judgment to determine how we live out lives with others. A praying life, a true praying life, is just the opposite. It is engaging, not defeated. It doesn't take no for an answer, and it is not pessimistic. It stands up against evil, and it fights back. It offers hope to us and those around us. It is not building a protection, a protective and cynical bubble around our lives. In the beginning, cynicism will tend to come about out of the wrong type of faith, a naive optimism or foolish confidence. Naive optimism can appear to be very similar to true faith in that both of them produce confidence and hope, but that similarity is only on the surface. Genuine faith comes from a knowledge and a relationship, knowing that the Father indeed cares and loves you and is there for you. Naive optimism tends to be groundless and more like a childlike trust but without the necessity of including a loving father in the equation. A naive optimism may tell us that we do not need to pray, because after all, God is in control, and everything will be fine regardless of what we do. In true cynicism, we cannot pray, though, because everything is out of control and nothing we do will ever change that. In America's early days, the goodness of God was something a large majority knew and lived. It was this knowledge that gave them the can-do attitude, giving them the courage and boldness that led to the establishment of the hallmarks of Western civilization. 
Unfortunately, as we entered into the 19th century, the optimism shifted from knowledge of the goodness of God to relying on the goodness of man. Faith itself became the object in and of itself, but faith in what? More and more, culture pushes into the belief, into a belief of oneself, and less a trust and belief in the goodness of God. It is all around us, and as Christians, it can even seep in and find a foothold in an already weary spirit, and it slowly turns us more and more towards cynicism. American culture has become a culture of striving for perfection, the perfect relationship, the perfect family, perfect kids, perfect body, etc. And as we fail to gain the expected perfection, we are setting ourselves up for a spirit of cynicism. We then begin to go through daily life just putting on a good face and acting the part. We attempt to fool others into believing that we are all well and perfect and we hide the true condition within. In essence, we end up creating multiple public versions of ourselves, each made to fit a different group of the people that were around. We cease to be real. We cease to open up to others. We retreat from community and become more and more individualistic as a way of hiding our true selves. More and more we find ourselves within the valley of the shadow of death. But more and more we retreat and give in to it. We begin to distance ourselves from the fight because the fight seems just too big and too hard. We have forgotten the true goodness and care of our loving Father who is always there. And instead, we often feel as though we are walking alone. We often do not always expect an answer to our prayers or strength in time of trouble. And so we often do not receive or we don't even ask. While the scriptures may be full of promises regarding prayer, we have forgotten what it tells us, such as, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. John 16, therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours, Matthew, uh, Mark 11. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith, Matthew 21. Now, what do we see in these verses, though? In John, we keep hearing of this, the receiving tied to abiding. Now, of course, if you need a refresher on what it means to abide, go back to Dave's messages on John, which he recently finished. But it implies a close, intimate connection with the Father, which a cynic will not have. I think the scripture is clear that such an intimate relationship is needed in order to have those kind of results, not only in prayer, but in many other aspects of the Christian walk that we read about, but that many do not experience. It can become a vicious circle where we don't have what we see in the scripture promises, and so we become cynical and we move away from the relationship that's needed to gain the promises. Another issue stems from where we stand in history and and our education. On this side of the great enlightenment period of history and the booming age of science, our logical 21st century mind knows there is no way we could ever do any of these things with our faith, like withering a fig tree. Because of that, we never even consider them possibilities, and we never ask, and we sit here in our skepticism rather than to expect the goodness that our Father has to offer. And the vicious circle continues. 
So we must identify those places in our life where we let skepticism and cynicism eat away at our faith, and we must work to overcome those things. Let us now take a look at some of the ways we can combat and hopefully cure any underlying cynicism we may have. First, be warm and wary. When Jesus sent out his disciples, he told them, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. When we are faced with the evils in this world, instead of letting our reaction be wise and innocent, many of us feel the desire to strike back as a wolf. We want to push back, to fight fire with fire, and this can lead more further into becoming cynical. Jesus tells us, tells us to be warm, yet weary, like a dove, but weary like a serpent. This other, then other, after other warnings about some of the obstacles the apostle will run up against, he tells them not to fear those who can only kill the body. And then he comforts them by telling them, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. We must never forget that we are valued and loved by our Heavenly Father. He is there to take care of us. When we live in a state where fear takes hold of us and robs us of the peace and comfort of the Father, we've lost that intimate relationship and are becoming more self-sufficient. So why do we fear? Why do we turn when faced with evil, where we should be boldly engaging it? Why do we not ask and seek daily blessings from our Father? When it comes to prayer, is any topic or desire too small or trivial? Are we thinking God is too far out there and too busy to worry about the little things we desire? We are letting cynicism break the intimate relationship that we are supposed to have. We are to stand confident in our Father's loving, in our Father's love, knowing that He is there for us. Instead of a naive optimism, we should be wary, yet confident in that love. We have to take that intimate love combined with vigilance through faith and prayer and tackle the evil that resides in our own heart and the hearts of others. We should follow after the example of Jesus who hung on the cross, being mocked by the religious leaders. They cynically mocked his, mocked him for what they thought was more of a childlike faith. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, Matthew 27. They were mocking him for his claims to be in touch with the Father. They thought him basically naive to put his trust in the Father's goodness. For see where it got him? Jesus, however, does not answer them, but he keeps his eyes turned to the Father, saying nothing. And doing nothing. Remember in John eighteen six, when Judas brought the soldiers and the Pharisees to get Jesus, we were told that when they asked if he was Jesus, he said, I am he, and they fell back and down on the ground. So surely he has the power that he could have done something while he if he desired to while he was on the cross. Instead he trusted in the Father's love, and in three days he was raised. He trusted in God and God delivered him. Evil men did not win, and true hope was born forth. We must learn to hope again. If we give in and let cynicism take over, it will kill hope. It may not be quick. It may not be a quick, noticeable change, but just a slow, creeping process that takes us away from the Father. When we are faced with great troubles and issues around us, and we see no immediate action on God's part, we may start doubting. 
we could slowly start thinking that God is basically powerless to stop the forces of, around us from their evil ways. And boy, can we uh, not relate to that now? When we go down that path, we will have squashed hope and trust. Without true hope, taking risks seem useless. Dreaming seems foolish, and prayer seems pointless. Yeah, we might pray for some things, but if we do not truly trust that all things can come about, that the Father is truly interested in our situation, or that he is interested in helping us in the smallest detail of life, then we have let a spirit of cynicism creep in. As Christians, we tend to maintain our hope in the ultimate, final, consummative, uh, consummation act of our redemption, of our eternal place in heaven. But then sometimes we get lost in a sea of doubt along the way, and we see this temporal, earthly life as just the trouble we have to suffer through. But we cease from asking and hoping for things that will affect this daily life as we are in this journey. Again, history and education play a big part for many of us, especially due to our upbringing, as well as the majority view of the, modern, of the modern church. Obviously, a pessimistic eschatology will play a big factor in this. The popular view that the world is to become worse and be destroyed adds to this issue, which typically is understood to mean that while God may hold the ultimate win, this world is not part of his plan, so we just have to deal with the evil in it until it ends. With this idea of why polish the brass of a sinking ship mentality, most people do not even ask God's work or victory in their life in general. We focus strictly on the end goal, our making it to heaven, and we ignore so much along the way. We can lose hope in this life and must be reminded from Scripture, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope, Romans fifteen thirteen. Because God is all-powerful and continues to act within the world around us, there still can be happy endings in life. When you pray to your Father in heaven for that from within the intimate, abiding relationship, you are reaching out to the heart of God that cares for you. When you truly grasp that, prayer becomes more of an adventure. We must regain a childlike spirit. I know many of us will quite often ignore praying for the little things in life, as mentioned, figuring we can handle those in our own strength and wisdom. Many times we don't ask because we overthink things and we begin to debate within ourselves whether we should ask or is this just something I might selfishly want? Is this really in his will? We debate with ourselves. Instead, we're to let our requests be known to God. Yes, he knows our hearts already. So share with him the desires and struggles that we have. Like a little hungry child, cry out for grace. As has been said before from this pulpit, prayer, prayer is a dependence, a declaration of our dependence upon God. Do you need God in your life? Then pray for things. Once we begin simply asking for help in all things, we stop being cynical and begin returning to a childlike faith. Instead of critiquing others' stories, ask for all things like a child and watch the story our Father is weaving before us. Prayer is our openly admitting that we can do nothing without God. Living in such a manner forms that close, intimate relationship that we need to be in. Prayer is humility in action. Little children often tend to have a humbler approach because they know they need help. But as we grow older, we often become more self-dependent, and that even becomes the case in our spiritual walk. 
There may be times in life when you become weary and beaten down in the spirit and it starts to affect your prayer life. You don't know what to say. And instead of, instead of stopping and in humility and a spirit of dependence crying out to the Father, we may start to avoid prayer altogether. Or we'll stumble through it with our increased skepticism. We need to regain a childlike spirit in these approaches. In the early centuries of the church, a practice called Lectio Divina, which is Latin for divine reading, was an established way of learning and praying. You can use it to pray the scriptures, kind of like we were talking earlier about the Lord's Prayer, but in this case, actually praying scriptures themselves. For instance, in those times when you are unsure what to say, try praying through the 23rd Psalm, but make it your own. Apply it to your own situation. Use it directly. Or just use it as a launch pad, kind of like we did the Lord's Prayer. As you pray through Psalm 23, reflect on the previous days and look for the shepherd's presence in your life. The ways that he provided, cared, and loved loved you. The way that he worked for those around you. Everyone walks through the valley of the shadow of death. The cynic will concentrate on the darkness. The child will focus on the shepherd's leading. Clinging to and focusing on the shepherd as you fight for your life in the valley, will dispel the fog of cynicism. Looking for and focusing on his presence in your daily life will remove all doubt and restore faith and hope. Now what would happen if we went back and examined Psalm 23 through the lens of cynicism, though, where we removed every sign and evidence of anything relating to the good shepherd's involvement in life? What would we be left with? First, we'll read the Lord's. We'll read, read this as it is. The Lord is my shepherd. This is, you know, we know this, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, let's remove everything that has anything to do with the shepherd and the Lord. And what do we have? My, I shall want. Me, me, my soul, me. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear evil. Me, me in the presence of my enemies. My head, my cup, me, all the days of my life. We're left with a pretty different scenario when we do that. That is essentially what we are doing when we seek to go at alone in life. As a Christian, in a real relationship with our Father, we are to keep our eye on the Father in all instances. In doing so, we watch Him work, and we trust in Him like a child who trusts their parents. Also, part of true childlike faith and dependence would include trust. As a child trusts that their parents would not intentionally deceive, mislead, or trick them, we must have peace knowing that God is not going to do so either. Now, I will say that I've had times in the past struggling with this where I definitely have gone astray. It kind of, uh, I would kind of attribute that kind of mentality these days to the madness <laughs> and the great influence that Hollywood has in the storytelling that they do. We basically see these things. So here's the general storyline. Someone has the power to grant wishes. I mean, you know, God, 
mainly in, a, say, a genie in a lamp. Now, the person states their wish, and their wish is technically fulfilled, but the results are not always quite what they had expected, and there's usually some horrible consequence that comes about because of it. When we approach prayer with this type of subconscious scenario in our mind, we may find ourselves sitting down to pray, and then finally we have to word our prayers to be very, very specific and detailed in order to not leave room for God to trick us. This will show a lack of trust on our part. Something like, Father, please help us with our finances, but please don't kill somebody in my family as a means of me getting insurance money to help with our situation. I mean, we see that, you know, yes, you know, we may ask for something, but in order to get it, it's something horrible is going to happen. Yeah, that's an extreme case, but the idea is that we trust God. We, would, we know he's going to use means, probably, but we feel like the means he's going to use may be undesirable and add further to the problem. So we may be hesitant to ask in certain ways. So acknowledging that not everything in life or in God's is not everything in life is in God's plan or his plan may be totally pleasant to us, if we approach God with this type of initial untrusting attitude, it will just lead us further down the path of cynicism. It stems from a faulty assumption that while God is there to help, it is not always in the way that we would want it or expect it. It is like we are completely ignoring verses like Matthew 7:11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Once we truly grasp not only the real presence, but also the real goodness of God, only once we do, then we can begin to be clear of these thoughts of doubts. Once we return to approaching him with the childlike faith and trust, and not with the horror movie faith of distrust, we can begin to reverse the cynicism that we hold on to. We must cultivate a thankful spirit. A thankful spirit will undercut cynicism like nothing else as you begin to pray each day. Stop and look back on the previous day. And as mentioned, look for the hand of the Lord in the little things throughout the day. Take nothing for granted. There may be things that are not always as noticeable at the time, but when you stop and think about it, these things can become more evident when viewed in hindsight. As you reflect on the previous day and you find evidence of the love of the Father acting within it, it should more easily stir up the spirit of thankfulness. Remember what Paul said in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. <clears throat> Just look at how prevalent the idea of thankfulness is in the writings of Paul as he goes on. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world, Romans 1.8. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, Ephesians 1. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are making, for, for you all making requests with joy, Philippians 1. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, Colossians 1. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, 1 Thessalonians 1. And we also thank God constantly, 1 Thessalonians 2. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, 
1 Thessalonians 3. Boy, Thessalonians got a lot in there. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, 2 Thessalonians 1. But we always, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, 2 Thessalonians 2. I thank God as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, 2 Timothy 1. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, Philemon 4. And looking back at some of our opening scriptures, Paul exhorts the church to follow such a thankful pattern. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thankfulness, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Devote yourself to prayer. Keep alert in it with thanksgiving. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Maintaining a thankful heart is a most powerful way to stay drawn into the fellowship of the Father as well as those around you. The more you notice His hand in your life, the more thankful you'll be. And the more thankful you are, you will draw closer and closer in dependence and intimacy to Him. While cynicism looks at the world around us and calls it phony, then pulls back from it, a heart filled with thanksgiving can look reality in the face and rejoice to see God's hand and care in all things. And it pulls us closer to Him and His world. That should also cause us to be more thankful and generous. And point five, cultivating repentance. The cynical heart thinks it is just a disinterested observer looking for authenticity around it while thinking it is humble because it actually offers nothing. It also feels great pride in thinking that it can see through everything around it. C.S. Lewis keenly observed this problem with, with thinking that you could see through everything when he said, You cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. If you see through everything, then eventually everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. In order to see all the wonder and hope around us, we must restore the innocent eye of a child. Cynicism in supposedly seeing through everything is actually lacking a purity of heart. When Christians fall into cynicism, their heart gets out of sync with God. There is a fracture between what is actually going on in the heart and what is showing in the outward behavior. Life continues, and we continue to act, speak, and perform like a Christian speaking about Jesus, yet lacking any true presence of Jesus in our life. This is, in fact, a disconnect between what we present on the outside and what we are on the inside. Not only do the words of those around us sound phony, but our words sound phony. Our empty religion makes everything around us seem just as empty and phony. James tells us, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This term, double-minded, only appears twice in Scripture, both times by James. And it carries a meaning of being wavering, doubting, and divided in interest. 
We become double-minded when we live in this phony manner, and it usually leads to a split personality type scenario. We begin to create the public us and the private us. I spoke earlier on how we may create multiple public versions of ourselves, different faces for different groups. This continues that process, but involves the darker, hidden, private us that few, if any, know anything about. If you are loving to your friends to their face, but then talk bad behind their back, you have created two personalities. Repentance is needed to bring these two sides back together, to bring reality and balance back to life. Cynicism sees this need of repentance in everyone else, but it lacks the humility to get the beam out of its own eye. While church should be the one safe haven where we can be ourselves and be loved by others, that becomes rarely the case. For many, church becomes a big smoke and mirrors effort also. Remember the story of David as he shows up at the battlefield to hear the ridicule and cursing spewing from the mouth of Goliath? The people of God were acting cowardly, not relying on their God as they should. David saw the split between their outward profession and their lack of action, and he took action as they should have, and God gave him the day. David intimately knew and was in contact with the Good Shepherd, and in his strength he took comfort and confidence which led him to taking action. How often do we as the church let cynicism cause us to shrink back rather than charge the battlefield in the strength of the Lord? We need to seek to bring our professed faith into harmony with our actual practice. The pure in heart begin by seeing through themselves, having already dealt with the bears and lions in their own valley of the shadow of death. That allows them to see with more clarity the ridiculousness of the cursing Goliaths in their lives. By cultivating a lifestyle of repentance, we deal with our own impurity and avoid the negative position that cynicism takes. And it leads to a purity in heart and spiritual healing. We need to have the faith and courage in our Father just like David, And in our individual battles, as well as alongside our church body, we need to stand up and proclaim with David, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and we will give you into our hand, and He will give you into our hand. And our last point, looking for Jesus. Instead of looking for the evil in the world around us, how often do we stop and look and think of ways that you might be seeing Jesus in the world around us? Now, this is sort of similar to what I spoke of in point four. But instead of looking back at the previous days to find the events that showed the Father's hand and the shepherd's guiding, this is more of a right here, right now, looking in your daily walk. More often than not, we have been influenced by the cynicism in the world around us, and we are quick to look for and find all of the injustices around us. It causes us to focus on other people's lack of integrity, on their split personalities. Instead, we should be looking around us, searching for the spark of truth instead, that underlying spark of Jesus that the cynicism might cause us to otherwise miss. Remember what we are told in Hebrews Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, in his book, A Praying Life by Paul Miller, he relates a story on this topic. Now, he explains how he and his wife owned a tax practice, part-time tax practice, you know, tax season. 
One day he arrived at the office at 8 o'clock. He had been struggling in life with cynicism and unbelief in his Christian walk. While he was working on the computer, he noticed the hard drive was getting full, so he deleted an old program. And in his haste, he clicked the delete all shared files, and all of a sudden, yes, got the blue screen of death. He killed his computer. He noticed his first appointment was not until 11.30 that day. So he spent the next few hours scrambling to fix the computer, calling the help desks, looking for backup files, etc. When the customer walked in, things were not fixed. He told the preparer out front, tell them that we'll be with them any minute now. He then had to sneak by the customer so he could run home to get a disc. He slunk past her, avoiding all eye contact. It was almost noon when he slipped by her a second time on his way to get another backup computer. He took a quick glance and he noticed that she was sitting quietly without a hint of impatience. When he returned with the computer at 1 o'clock, she was still waiting serenely. By the time he finally called her in to do her tax return, it was 3 o'clock. She had sat for three and a half hours without a single question or complaint. And because she had taken the bus there, he asked her if he could offer a ride home. But then he just blurted out, Depressed and frustrated, I blurted out, does Jesus make a difference in your life? I thought she might be Catholic. Please understand, I was not witnessing. I wanted to be witnessed too. She replied, Jesus is everything to me. I talk to him all the time. I was floored, partly by the freshness and simplicity of her faith, but mainly by the unusual patience that displayed her faith. My frantic busyness was a sharp contrast to her quiet waiting in prayer. She reflected the spirit of prayer. I reflected the spirit of human self-sufficiency. I'd begun the day depressed, partly struggling with the relevance of Jesus. Now I was overwhelmed by the irony of my unbelief. Jesus had been sitting in our waiting room right in front of me. (laughs) As obvious as the daylight, I walked by him all day. I had wondered if Jesus was around, and he had been silently waiting all day, saying nothing. It was a stunning display of patience. Cynicism makes us look in the wrong direction. It makes us look for all the cracks in the people around us and even those in our church. Our heart gets into the habit of viewing the world this way, and that will easily get brought over into the church. I think also our knowledge of Scripture can be a problem in that area too. When we start thinking that we have a deeper understanding or we have the inside source on a doctrine that others around us do not, it can easily cause us to doubt the faith and knowledge of others. Instead of seeing others as a work in in progress or through the eyes of grace and beauty, Watching as the Father's hands are molding out the rough edges, we only seem to see the rough edges. We need to be more like Paul, who, though dealing with the highly corrupt practices of the church in Corinth, still had the ability to say, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that God, of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. 1 Corinthians 1, 4. Think about it and recall just how bad the church at Corinth seemed to be. They were bad off, yes, but but he saw the good work that was being performed in them by Jesus. Rather than simply focusing on the corruptness, he saw Jesus, and that is something that we need to focus on doing more in our life. Once we get a grip on the ways that cynicism has crept into our life and heart, we can begin to change our ways and focus our hearts on being thankful. 
and in so doing, begin a better, healthier prayer life. Now, as we end here, I'm going to, this is, this is bonus. I didn't even have this in my notes, but if you're all looking for, and this is always convicting stuff to read. I know we've told this story before when uh, Gennady was here for the conference and how Dave and I were blown away at the stories he was telling us in the car from the ride in the airport of the answered prayers. It reminded me, if you ever read, if you want to read books on prayer, find some stuff by George Mueller. George Mueller lived in the 1800s and owned an orphanage in, in the UK. You also find out that he buried two wives and two children. But he, both of his wives and both of his children, I mean his whole family, so over, over his lifetime, he lived for like 90-some years. But the stories he tells of running that orphanage and just going to bed one day with the cupboards are bare, and he just prayed, and the next morning waking up, somebody knocked on the door and brought him a load of food. Over and over and over and over. It is... It blows your mind. You're like, I never get prayers answered like that. Well, you know, that's, I, I, and you know, maybe, I don't know. It's, it, it blows your mind. He has no money in his wallet and, and for anything, and the next day somebody donates a bunch of money to the church. So it, George Mueller, look it up. There's books on his prayer. There's books on his life. Um, there's a book that I read called An Hour with George Mueller. It's a guy interviewing him. That, is, that in, in itself is enough, and it should only take you about an hour to read because it's An Hour with George Mueller. But there are volumes and volumes of books on his life. But anyway, if you want something that's going to make you realize that prayer is real, because we hardly see it in America, it seems like, these days. We're so skeptical. But anyway, that's just a little bonus there. Right now we're going to end it, though, right where we began. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that, we are, that you are there. Help us in our unbelief and our distrust and our just the inability to be in abiding relationship and closeness that we should have with you. We just pray, Lord, that you would help us to look around at our lives at areas that need work. Help us to be mindful of this. Help us to start thinking more about this rather than just complaining about what we don't have, that we may do something to overcome those hindrances that we have. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much just pray that you would help us to stay in it, to read it often, and to seek you for all things. Help us have that relationship that you desire. We just pray these things in your name. Amen.